Welcome to the Paranormal News Insider for the week of February 15th, 2022, and officially episode number 504, and this is your host, as always, Dr. Brian D. Parsons, and we are live on the Paranormal King radio network at ParanormalKing.com. What a weekend uh, coming out of uh, Sunday with the big game. And then you've got uh, Valentine's Day on Monday, and now tonight, why not? Let's continue the fun with the Paranormal News Insider. I, I don't know if it's the exclamation point on your week so far, but I, it just maybe it's fate to uh, somewhat, I guess you could call them both holidays, and then uh, tonight's show. So I hope you enjoyed Valentine's Day and uh, were able to go out, maybe. I don't know if people are going out and having romantic dinners, or maybe you Ubered some food in. Not sure. Uh, but either way, I hope you enjoyed that and uh, enjoyed the, the big game as well. I uh, had to work on Sunday, but I made it home in time to watch uh, the second half of the first quarter and then the rest of the game, of course. And I hope you enjoyed it. I was actually kind of getting used to not watching the commercials anymore. You usually see all those cool oh. commercials during the week on online nowadays and I got quite a few of them emailed to me from different companies so uh, you know you can get up and get something to drink or go to the bathroom or whatever so yeah I missed that part of it though used to look forward to the commercials and of course the halftime shows are always a disaster uh, but I think a lot of people like this one pretty well and again Valentine's Day running the day after is kind of interesting to run those two days back to back and uh one gift that i didn't get that i didn't see this story in time pretty interesting thing that i uh, just i don't know why i just feel like it's worth mentioning on the show it's something you never really thought of and you you kind of maybe like if you're like me initially you probably think that's the most disgusting thing i've ever heard and then a moment later you'll think Oh, yes, maybe it's not a bad idea. Uh, so for Valentine's Day, one of the uh, most sought-after items, I guess, uh, was perfume. It usually is, or you know, jewelry, or uh, a night out, or chocolate-covered cherries. It's usually your, your thing that you do. But uh, a special perfume came out, and it's uh, one of the most sought-after things Ever, I guess it just disappeared uh, from the websites. It's uh, let's see, it's still out of stock. Um, gone, out of stock. It's uh, created by the Idaho Potato Commission. I know that sounds weird. Uh, yeah, it's a new perfume from the Idaho Potato Commission. It was a uh, a limited edition fragrance called. Frites, F-R-I-T-E-S, and the bottle is uh, a clear bottle 
with uh, some looks like yellow liquid in it, and it's shaped like the end of a corn cob. And yes, that uh, this is all adding up to you. The perfume doesn't smell like corn, but it smells like French fries. Yes, French fries, which is really weird. Um, apparently, uh, Jamie Hyam, the president and CEO of the Idaho Potato Commission, said, uh, quote, whether you're at a drive through restaurant or dining in, it's near impossible to not grab a fry and take a bite before you dive into your meal. The smell is too good to resist, so, unquote. So maybe that's what they're going for. I don't know. When I first thought of that, my first thought of uh, was my days working in fast food, uh, coming home smelling like fried food. It's very hard to get out of your clothes and your skin. Not something I, I think I'd want to go out and buy a bottle of and spray all over myself. But, you know, then the other part of me thinks that that would be kind of cool to smell that. You smell French fries. Everybody kind of looks around wondering what that smell is coming from. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe that says something about America. I'm not sure. But uh, that we find uh, French fries more irresistible than good smelling perfume. But anyway, it's sold out. Let me try to. See if I can ever snatch a bottle somewhere, but uh, I don't know. Kind of weird. Uh, also, over the weekend, what was it? The weekend, the twelfth? Is that Friday? Uh, it was Saturday. Wow, time flies. Uh, we lost Ivan Reitman, who was the director, of course, Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters Two, and uh, rather uh, sudden, rather sad. Uh, Seventy-five years old. And, of course, his son, uh, Jason, directed Ghostbusters Afterlife, which finally came out last year. If you haven't seen that, um, oh, that was a fantastic movie. I really enjoyed what they did and how they did it with, uh, with everything. And I, I don't know why. People are seemingly divided on it. But, you know, I'm a huge Ghostbusters fan. I watched that movie when I was a kid and grown up with that long before I was involved in paranormal research and investigation. And I still love that movie as crazy as it is, but, uh, yeah, the new one, I uh, found it pretty, pretty good. And, uh, it's sad uh, to lose all these iconic people. Of course, I guess the older you get, the more people, you know, that, that pass away because you grew up with all these people and the work that they did. Uh, Ivan Reitman, uh, directed meatballs back in 1979 stripes, with Bill Murray, which is uh, still one of my favorites, early 80s. And, of course, the Ghostbusters 1 and 2 twins. That was with uh, Schwarzenegger, uh, Danny DeVito, Kindergarten Cop, Dave, among other movies. And he was involved in all sorts of stuff, so a uh, big loss. And he was working on a lot of projects as well, but... Yeah, it is what it is. Um, people are, are moving on. And let's see. It's looking at paranormal conferences, conventions. We're still kind of in a lull period of the year. Uh, not a whole lot going on uh, as far as events. February is usually a, a very quiet month. Uh, we did it over the weekend have the Dead of Winter Festival. And we got a couple of weeks. It looks like the Haunted Savannah Paracon, February 25th 
through the 27th in Savannah, Georgia, is the next ghost event. Nothing in UFOs until March, as the same in cryptozoology. And yeah, late March, early, pretty much April is the runaway months for everything. It just seems like that's the unofficial opening of everything. Uh, paranormal conferences and conventions. And of course, you can find the entire list. It's not the entire list, but my entire list on paranewsinsider.com and click on the events tab at the top. And as always, if there's uh, ones missing or you have information about ones that I don't have on here, I don't really, uh, I don't really look too much right now. Usually I wait until uh, about mid April. That's usually when all the late events are finally starting to uh, pop up everywhere. Uh, I, I do look every now and again if, if I see somebody who's uh, talking at one and they're advertising, I'll look around. But if you have any information about any event and would like to see it on that list, this maybe even talked about here on the show, just let me know. You can email me at insider at paranewsinsider.com or catch me on Facebook or Twitter. And that would be Paranews Insider or at Paranews Insider respectively on those two uh, social media outlets. And with that, we'll dive into some news this week. News is uh, it's different this time of the year. It's uh, Sometimes it's a little hard to find some good stuff. There's a lot of news stories tumbling around, and it's a lot of the same stuff. Uh, but there's some uh, really interesting I don't know if I call them gems, but interesting stories that I've seen that I've uh, been reading the last few days. And uh, here in the cryptid arena, as we always start out in, uh, I, I stumbled across one that uh, this happens a lot where you'll read a headline, you'll see a pop open a story, and it's, it's a fresh, it's a new story uh, dated within the last few days. And so it sounds new and intriguing. Uh, but it's actually based on something old. And it kind of annoys me, but you know, if it sells the first time and it's not really dated material, uh, this happens a lot, uh, not just in the paranormal, but anything out there. Uh, it pops up again and again and sometimes again. Uh, and a lot of times I'll just sidestep that story and, and move on to something that's uh, current or you know new uh, as – instead of just talking about the same old stuff. Uh, but I don't think I talked about this story. I remember reading about this. Um, and this one is, uh, it's also good for people who like to research cryptids around the world. So I decided, why not? Especially, if, you know, it's a new story uh, on old information. Uh, so the U.S. version of the Sun posted uh, an interesting story a few days ago running the title it said uh, quote we're not alone from a giant octopus to an eel pig here's america's weirdest lake monster myths and the uh, the article uh, referenced a map of lake monsters in america created by atlas obscura now when i saw that i clicked on the link and i thought 
I was a little confused because I thought I remember seeing this a long time ago. Maybe they updated it. Maybe it's new. Uh, but, of course, when I clicked on the link to see the website and look at the map, uh, the date of the article was on November 22nd, 2013. It's quite a bit ago. Uh, it was on uh, with an article with Allison Meyer. Uh, but it, it's, uh, it's still pertinent information. Nothing has changed. These creatures haven't been uh, eradicated by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, the article includes a drawing of a map with uh, various water-based creatures scattered throughout with a key at the bottom separating uh, a lot of the Nessie-like creatures versus uh, a handful that are just uh, totally different than what you're used to. You know, Loch Ness Monster is pretty much the um, the model, if you will, for most water-based creatures, although every single one seems to have their own individual attributes. Um, and the article uh, focuses on four. I think there's over 30-some-odd creatures. Granted, there's probably a lot more than that. Uh, there was a couple that uh, I think were missing from it. I can't remember off the top of my head uh, looking at it. Uh, but I, I don't know what kind of confines they have as far as uh, requirements for putting these things on the maps. Um, but yeah, they focus on four of the creepiest. And of course, the Loch Ness Monster is the most well-known and iconic creature. Uh, but it's not as interesting as some of these that are on the list here in the United States. Of course, uh, it's most recognized worldwide. It's pretty plain. It's pretty plain. It's, it's actually changed over the decades as well. It used to be a, uh, a creature that was not just seen in the water. It was actually seen on land as well. But we don't have reports of that anymore. Go figure. Uh, but first up in this article is the giant octopus of Lake Thunderbird. That sounds cool enough to be a giant octopus in Lake Thunderbird. Uh, the creature is said to have a head as large as a horse and as large tentacles. Uh, but uh, the big problem here is uh, Lake Thunderbird is a freshwater lake. So I'm not sure about that. But uh, uh, second is the Lake Worth Monster of the Fort Worth Nature Center and Refuge in Texas uh, near Fort Worth. Uh, the creature is said to be part man and part goat. I don't know how that's possible. And lives both in the water and on land. Of course, I've heard some stories about farmers. Uh, we'll just leave that right there. Uh, a story goes that the Lake Worth monster jump, jumped out of a tree onto a man's car and also left numerous sheep dead around the lake. Uh, they had snapped necks. Uh, don't know why it would kill sheep if it's part goat. It's kind of weird. Um, third in the story is the eel pig of Kentucky. Yes, the eel pig uh, is part eel and uh, part pig. Which parts? Well, I'll tell you here in a second. The eel pig purportedly lives in Harrington Lake in Kentucky and is just like its name. Uh, so it's an eel-like creature with a long, curly, pig-like tail. So kind of a letdown. I was hoping it was more of a pig. Uh, just got a pig tail. 
Uh, according to the story, one hypothesis is the uh, sightings were of a giant alligator. And of course, alligators are not native to Kentucky. So that uh, maybe somebody dumped one off or jumped off a train of a, of a circus train, train or something. I don't know. Just somehow just got there. Uh, but I don't know where you get a pig from an alligator or an eel from an alligator. Speaking of alligators, last but certainly not least is the Alkali Lake monster of Nebraska. Because, of course, when you think lake monsters, you instantly think of Nebraska. Uh, the creature is said to look like an alligator with a rhino-like horn. Not a creature I'd want to come into contact with whatsoever. Alligators are scary enough, but you put a giant horn on its head. Yeah, no thanks. Uh, sightings of the creature that also purportedly had a terrible smell peaked out way back in the 1920s. So it's been about 100 years. Uh, but the legend still continues. Uh, looking at this map, the Atlas Obscura map shows 22 Nessie-like creatures uh, in addition to a handful of the stranger ones like the uh, four mentioned in this recent article. A couple others I think uh, that are worth a mention are the uh, Lake Chelan Dragon in Washington State. Uh, this creature is also known as the winged alligator snake. That's scary. You put wings on a snake, then you add an alligator part to it. That's that's not cool. Uh, it lives in the deepest lake in Washington, which is uh, 1,486 feet at its deepest. Uh, it has the legs and body of an alligator, the head and eyes of a serpent, sharp teeth, and a long scaly tail, as well as bat-like wings. I uh, hope it can't fly. That's all I ask for. Uh, also, a notable mention is the North Shore monster of the Great Salt Lake in Utah. Another location that you kind of wouldn't think there would be a lake monster. The Great Salt Lake. Uh, the creature was described in 1877 and is said to be a creature with a crocodile-like body and the head of a horse. The creature let out a loud bellowing noise and charged salt workers uh, back in 1877. Uh, it is believed that the creature seen that day might have been a buffalo. Of course, it would actually be a bison, but that's okay. I'll let that slide. Um, yeah, I don't know how you mistake that. Uh, a buffalo. They are kind of weird-looking creatures, I guess, if you've never seen one before. Uh, but uh, crocodile-like body. And I guess the head of a horse matches, but uh, I don't know where you get a crocodile body from a buffalo. Yeah, a lot of these are just local folklore, and especially back in the 1800s. Uh, if you had a, an interesting story uh, about your town, you get a little, you know, a uh, little bit of, you know, they, what do they say with uh, with news? You know, even bad news is still news, and it still puts you on the map. And that's pretty much what these uh, these towns did. You know, you take uh, 
uh, Aurora, Texas, for example, and their made-up story of the uh, cigar-shaped UFO that crashed into a windmill. Uh, they did that out of desperation because they were losing the railroad in that area, and they did, and they ended up that town just dried up to nothing because they moved the railroad. Uh, so if you put something on the map that gets people to talk about your town and want to come to your town, maybe you can get the railroad through and your town will live. It doesn't always work, apparently. And uh, one thing that we've kind of missed out on here on the show is the uh, the book of the week. really haven't had the book of the week in a long time. Uh, granted, I haven't really bought any books recently. I've still got a whole bunch that I'm still trying to finish. My problem is, is I read like five or six at a time. Uh, it's been a while. And uh, just saw a story. Of kind of, I think it came out for last week's show. I did kind of sidestepped it last week because uh, it sounded a little fishy, a little stinky. Uh, but uh, decided it kept popping up, so I figured I'd probably talk about it this week. Uh, this story, I didn't realize that at first when I was reading the story, uh, kind of glancing at it last week. Uh, it's based on a recently released book on Bigfoot. And the book itself is called Beasts of the World, Hairy Humanoids. And it's authored by Andy McGrath and was published on January 27th of 2022. Uh, last year, uh, McGrath published uh, Beasts of Britain. And this latest book is billed as volume one of a seven-part series which seeks to investigate the histories, evidence, and common theories surrounding the numerous cryptid creatures that have been reported around the globe. All that according to the Amazon page for the book. Uh, this book seems to focus on attempting to classify these different Bigfoot creatures that are seen around the world by looking at the uh, physiological and behavioral differences of the creatures. That's a pretty slippery slope. It's kind of hard to do uh, since all we have to go on are the individual reports, the personal experiences that uh, are based on the personal perspectives of each individual witness. And these witnesses uh, usually just get a fleeting uh, sighting really quick. And so then we kind of... Uh, make some conclusions based on what our sightings. So then, you know, then we further those conclusions or guesses uh, by adding all these other things into it, uh, these differences, if you will, to, to research them. And you see, you know, a lot of regional differences in creatures. And so one of which, uh, just mentioned here in the chat room, the Ohio Grassman. So the question is, is the Ohio Grassman a Bigfoot? Well, Bigfoot is pretty much a catch-all term for any large bipedal hominid creature of mysterious origin. I mean, technically, you could say Sasquatch is a Bigfoot. But is Bigfoot a Sasquatch? That's, that's the harder question to answer. Uh, but each... Of these uh, creatures, that there's a lot of regional names for them. So Ohio Grassman uh, is named for uh, the Kenmore area of Akron here in Ohio. I'm sitting probably 
eh, 20, 25 minutes north of that area where I'm sitting right now. Uh, but uh, Grassman is also known in Michigan. And I think some other uh, Midwestern states as well. That name has been used as a small regional name uh, for these creatures. And generally, that's why we have these different names, like the Falk Monster, um, Momo the Monster, uh, Sasquatch, Bigfoot, Skunk Ape. You know, then you go country to country with Yaren, Yeti, Yowie, um, all these other individual names of, of creatures. And it's because of A, yes, they're regional creatures, but also B, there are some differences, again, in the uh, physiological descriptions uh, and the behavioral differences of these creatures as well. You know, skunk ape is known for its horrible smell. Um, you know, some of these other creatures are known for uh, different antics or acting a certain way. You know, there's always that East Coast versus West Coast, uh, not rat battles, but uh, Bigfoot battles. You know, are the West Coast Bigfoot more aggressive than the East Coast? You know, we hear a lot of that. Uh, which ones are more uh, curious about people? And, you know, there's just different things that are known to be different for each of these individual creatures, which we don't know if any of them exist. We don't know if, uh, you know, if any of these individual creatures are real. A lot of them are just local myth, local folklore, uh, local stories. You know, somebody saw something and then, you know, Uncle Bob down the street says, oh, yeah, I saw it too in 1962 when I was driving my Lincoln. Did you? Um, you know, people come out of the woodwork and, uh, you know, when a couple of stories are published, then all of a sudden everybody sees these things. Oh, this is big in the 1970s. Bigfoot flaps everywhere, it seemed like. But are these all the same creature or all these creatures individuals? That's the... That's really the million-dollar question. We don't really know. Uh, but that's why each one gets its own little name, its own regional kind of focus. And talking about the uh, physiological and behavioral differences, uh, it, it, there's been a lot of people that have tried this. Um, Dave Shealy, David Shealy, down in uh, Florida, the Everglades area in Ochopee, Florida, which I mentioned that, gosh, it was a couple of weeks ago. We talked about that. It's the, it's got down the street from the uh, Skunk Ape Research Headquarters building, which you can't miss it. Uh, it's got a, a large ape out as well. And down the street from that is the smallest post office in the United States. You always see a line in that post, that little building. It's, it's like literally big enough just for one person to stand inside of it. There's always a line because everybody wants a stamp, you know, from that. Um, they want to get their mail mailed from there. Just because, I guess. I don't know. I just took a picture. Uh, but anyway, uh, David Shealy, the uh, self-proclaimed skunk ape, skunk ape expert in Florida, uh, he hypothesizes that skunk apes are omnivores feeding in March through May on flightless birds in rookeries as well as fish, reptiles, as well as deer and wild hog during those months. Uh, in September and October, it's thought that they feed on saw palmetto berries in different regions of the Everglades. November, December, they seem to be observed in oak forests 
looking for acorns. So Shelley's observations are also based on physical signs such as scat to determine what the creatures had been eating. And this overlap is where uh, McGrath's book comes back in. Uh, the headline talking about his book in the Daily Star says, quote, Bigfoot dung can be easily confused for human poo, warns experienced hunter, unquote. What's the differences between dung and poo? I'm not sure. Um, it's probably just a load of crap. Uh, Bigfoot researchers have been a little weary of some of the statements from the story um, made by, you know, the headline and some of the some of the stuff in here. It's, it's just a small focus, but they make it the headline. Uh, but uh, if it's good enough to get attention, it's going to help sell your book. And that's really all you care about. So I, I don't think it's a bad thing that the focus is on scat on the headline. Uh, but uh, some of the Bigfoot researchers are a little confused by this, a little weary uh, because the assumption is that a Bigfoot dung in the woods can be easily confused as belonging to a bear or a human. And in reality, that's kind of like saying mistaking a blue jay for a bald eagle. You know, they're different colors, different sizes, different shapes. Not quite the thing. The other birds, but they're different things. Uh, for me, uh, this is kind of weird, but we've talked about it here on the show in the past. Uh, I love scat. Scat is uh, one of my favorite types of sign uh, because it's easily traceable back to the creature that made it. And it contains DNA, but it also contains uh, what the creature ate. And it can tell you how long it's been since the creature has been there and, and pretty much what kind of animal left it behind. Um, and it's uh, been a focus of cryptid research, but not, not for Bigfoot. Uh, not so much for cryptid creatures, but it, it, you know what I've talked about here on the show numerous times. Uh, but it's for what normal animals leave behind. And I've said it before. If you can't identify what is normal, then how can you make claims that there's something paranormal or even otherworldly out there creeping through the woods? You know, how do you know that? Uh, so get to know what's in your woods. If you don't know what uh, – normal scat for a coyote looks like how are you going to know that you had uh, you got mountain lion scat in your backyard uh, you gotta you have to learn how to not just identify it from a book because it seems like uh, people who uh, do bigfoot research or any kind of cryptid research i mean let's face it most people who are into cryptozoology uh, pretty much only research bigfoot anyway or you know, variations of these creatures. Uh, but, you know, a lot of them, they'll get into the footprint game and they'll just look for regular Bigfoot uh, tracks. And maybe they'll look at Bigfoot tracks. But, you know, do they do research on shoes? Uh, do they do research on tracking? Do they do research on what creatures leave not only footprints, but what kind of sign do they leave behind? Uh, you know, some birds will chew branches and twist the branches up. And people will say, well, no, Bigfoot did that. Did it? But do you know that birds do that as well? Um, so if you don't know the habits of normal creatures, uh, don't don't make, 
you know, outlandish statements about what creatures are doing that are possibly imaginary or fictional, even if they are real, maybe they're not real in your area. You're just uh, making assumptions based on observations of other cases where you're at for YouTube likes and uh, people to subscribe to your channel. Uh, but again, yeah, it all comes down to understanding what is normal, what should be happening. Because if you figure that out, then those things that are strange really do stick out and you really honestly have no explanation. Uh, but it's far too often we see these stories where people say, oh, this is, uh, this is definitely a Bigfoot track. But in reality, it's a, it's a bear print. Or it's uh, human shoes that have, you know, those toes. You ever seen those shoes that they have the toes? You know, the, your toes go into the shoe. It's just kind of weird. Oh, look, leaves behind toe prints. Actually got excited first time I ever got to see those um, prints out in the woods in the hiking trails. But uh, McGrath does kind of clarify his statements on the whole scat thing. Uh, he does say, quote, scat can provide useful insight into the dietary habits of hairy hominids, or I should say humanoids. However, it should be noted that no one knows what their scat should look like. It is presumed that many of these animals are omnivores and that their scat may be similar in content and appearance to a bear or human, albeit on a larger scale, unquote. So on that... Um, bear scat uh, is not like human scat at all. And if you've done any research uh, on that, he would have known that. Um, would have never ever said that. That uh, and how many people poop in the woods? I don't know. Um, I guess some people do when they're hiking. You're supposed to bury it, by the way. Uh, at least, uh, what is it, like 100 feet from any water source, a couple feet down. Yeah, I don't think anyone's going to go through that. Uh, bear scat might appear in decent-sized piles, uh, especially uh, near a food source. But it's almost always pretty obvious that it's not human scat at all. Uh, bear scat is usually tubular like humans, but it's bigger, it's thicker. And it can also, uh, can also appear globular, so small globs, you know, globe-like round pieces, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Uh, it, and actually, bear poop, bear scat actually smells pleasant, when it's, especially when it's the product of uh, berries and fruit. It actually doesn't smell bad. Which is scary when you come across it in the woods, especially near bushes, and you smell the uh, – it's pretty much fermented in the bear's body pretty much. But it, it doesn't – bear poop never smells that bad. Of course, it makes you more nervous if it's fresher, and it doesn't carry as many diseases as human, human scat. You never want to touch uh, canine or feline or – human um, scat, but uh, bear scat's really not, there's really nothing wrong with it. It's actually safe to handle. Not that I would recommend that. 
just uh, always bring gloves. Yeah. Uh, anyway, enough of the scat talk. Uh, McGrath's book seems to focus on Bigfoot being a flesh and blood creature, uh, which is uh, getting harder and harder to to find people like that anymore. It seems like everyone's gone off this uh, off the reservation here with their different hypotheses of what Bigfoot might be. Uh, possibly uh, some sort of undiscovered ape or even a tribe of people unknown to the world. But uh, I haven't read the books. I don't know if he talks about the uh, interdimensional creatures or the uh, some of the other hypotheses that uh, Bigfoot might be an alien or I've even heard that it's an alien's pet. I, I don't know. I don't know what direction he goes, but it sounds like from reading the Amazon description and some of the... Uh, the comments he's he's made uh, publicly about the book that it's more of Bigfoot being a uh, relative of Giganopithecus or uh, Neanderthal or just some tribe of hairy people, I guess, in the woods. But uh, sounds like a decent read. Uh, we'll see where he goes with this uh, entire large series of books. Kind of interested to see where he, where he, he does go, but. Uh, uh, maybe I'll pick up this book. I'll put it on my list. Let's just say that I have like probably, I don't even know how long, my list of books that I want. It's not just uh, paranormal books, but all sorts of books. Uh, the book is 376 pages. So it's quite the read. I don't know if there's pictures or uh, other case reports or anything else in the book. Or it's just uh, his hypotheses or... Uh, stories or, or whatever it is. Uh, it's also available on Kindle. I like a physical book in my hands. Uh, another question in chat. Why did the FBI investigate Bigfoot? Um, well, I never really investigated Bigfoot. It actually uh, was given uh, information by researchers uh, about Bigfoot. And they really concluded that it wasn't. Uh, what they thought it was. I think it was hair. Uh, somebody sent in hair samples claiming it was Bigfoot, and they did analysis. And this is a long time ago. This is probably 1960s or 70s. So it wasn't recent. You know, you could take deer hair pretty much anywhere and they'll run it down pretty quick for you. Uh, but the FBI researched the uh, hair samples and came back deer. And that was pretty much all their files. Uh, somebody uh, did a Freedom of Information Act uh, research on uh, Bigfoot, and they came up with that, and it was really no big deal. Uh, but it made headlines a few years ago. And uh, speaking of Freedom of Information Act, we got some news in the UFO arena on that. Gosh, probably my best segue I've had on many shows. Yes, Freedom of Information Act researchers have put together the first view of the July 2019 incidents involving warships off the coast of California that uh, kind of spurred uh, the latest uh, you know, headwind of UAP, UFO research, whatever you want to call it in this day and age. And uh, a lot of these documents now are uh, becoming – you know, available for the public. And 
some of the stuff is uh, was redacted. It is now not redacted for whatever reason. And uh, show a print of that uh, copy of one of these documents in the chat room. Maybe there it is. That's pretty big. So this is a unclassified. Uh, this is the interaction with the USS Paul Hamilton with these uh, so-called UASs, which are uh, unknown, I should say unmanned aerial, um, what am I looking at here? Swarm of UA, uh, unmanned aerial systems. Got confused with AIS. Uh, unmanned aerial systems, so UFOs, UAPs, whatever else they're going to call them in the future, which surprise we haven't come up with another name yet. Of course, unmanned aerial systems is kind of a um, – to me, that's a clue that's uh, maybe not so obvious to some people. But unmanned aerial system, to me, indicates that they're aware it was a drone. That's just my guess um, of that. But um, so documents secured describe the timeline, which is what we're looking at here in this picture. Uh, there's a map on the left and on the right is the key to the map of different uh, things that happened during this interaction. And the uh, this is uh, finally admitted here with these uh, documents being released that it, it was a actual swarm of UAS objects, again, unmanned aerial systems around these ships. Usually they, were, they just say that uh, a couple of these UAPs were reported and now it's, uh, it's actual a swarm which was used um, pretty much by people who were researching this story or talking about it. Uh, the word swarm was used. So now it's interesting that the, uh, the government is now using that term. Uh, deck logs of these ships indicate, uh, as well as the uh, USS Paul Hamilton, indicate the, uh, the objects uh, were uh, seen, let's see, just minutes after the ship turned its navigation lights on. Uh, as well as disabled its automatic identification system, or AIS. So disabling the AIS transponder, uh, basically that's, think of an airplane. So airplane has a transponder. Boats have transponders to uh, give out their location. Uh, the Coast Guard was uh, observing these uh, transponder readings and noted that the time frame in which they were turned off, it's not a big deal. Uh, when these ships are doing what they do, uh, if they're testing or they're doing out different things, they will turn off the transponders. They're not really required to broadcast it anyway. They probably just had it on uh, just until they were where they needed to be and probably just switched them off for uh, whatever they were doing out there. Uh, it's just that the data seems a little odd or that they had uh, they'd located these UAS objects probably uh, prior to the uh, reports and deck logs being uh, documented. Maybe they did see these objects or 
Uh, there was reports of them, so they turned to the transponder off. That's kind of what people are speculating. But, you know, it's again, it's it's normal. They do that anyway. Um, the ev- entire event, so when you look at the beginning of the documented sighting to the end of the documented sightings, uh, the event lasted two hours and 49 minutes, and including uh, some of the crew observing flashing red lights. Now, the objects were seen at about 2,000 feet above the ship and were measured at uh, going around 70 miles per hour compared to the movement of the ship. Uh, So none of those are out-of-this-world measurements. You know, this is nothing that's abnormal for, you know, UFOs, you know, flying at Mach whatever, making... Uh, turns uh, on the you know dime movements you know left and right uh, up and down well, that would kill a, uh, a normal operator or exceeds that of what we're able to do with uh, current technology that seems pretty pretty paltry uh, only going 2000 feet at 70 miles an hour but still uh, objects that are far offshore like that how did they get there what were they doing there and uh, why we were not able to maybe shoot one down, although they did observe one of these go into the water. Uh, with these documents, there were also FLIR images that were made publicly available, but uh, they're not very good. Uh, they're not uh, very good resolution at all. They're just uh, little black splotches on a dark gray background. There's uh, really no usable detail to help determine what these objects might have been. And while there seems to be a, a lot of speculation, especially in the the uh, the article I was reading on thedrive.com, lots of speculation about these documents. Um, you know, based on what was released and what was not released, as well as again what was uh, redacted. And then unredacted. Um, and again, the fact that they're calling these UAS, so unmanned aerial systems versus unidentified aerial phenomena, of course, they're not going to use UFO, but unmanned aerial system seems to me to point toward a drone-like system, something that is uh, kind of a known type of object. And so to me, I think it tips their hand a little bit as to what they know or don't know. And I, you know, a lot of people speculate that there's a lot more going on here than what they see. And I, I kind of agree with that to an extent. I think there is a little bit more going on, uh, but I think they actually know a little bit more about what's going on. Usually I, I say kind of the opposite that uh, the government is just as lost about What's going on in our skies is what we are. And we all speculate that the government, you know, A, has this technology. B, has reverse engineered it. Uh, C, has deals with people, or I should say aliens, or the galactic, whatever it's called. Uh, but I don't think any of that's true. I think they're just as lost about all this stuff as uh, what the general public is. But when you're coming with these... Uh, Potential drones, I think they know a lot more 
than what they're telling us. Uh, but they're not going to tip their hands because create in, international incidents, create a lot of public fear. And the fact that these objects are run off the coast of the United States, it's better to make people think that these are UFOs than uh, Russian drones or Chinese drones that are right off our coast spying on us, which would really be nothing new. Uh, believe it or not, there's submarines all the time off our coast from foreign countries. Uh, if you've been on a cruise, you've uh, probably been observed by these uh, foreign submarines. And, you know, we know they're there. We just don't do anything about it. Um, that's, just, that's just how we work because we do the same thing to them. We're off their coasts pretty close, watching, observing, uh, gathering, you know, information about what's going on. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's yeah, information that they have about what's going on out there isn't so much about alien powered UFOs. Uh, then again, drones or other aerial vehicles that are being utilized by other governments. Uh, I've also speculated my speculation, if I'm allowed to do so, everyone else is allowed to do so. Uh, I think that this could also be uh, private organizations, private industries here in the United States that are spying on government technology. That they're trying to, uh, for whatever reason, create uh, new technologies or better technologies for either our government or other governments. Uh, because, you know, everything is... Everything's by contract. Uh, testing is, is done with uh, various levels of, of acknowledgement or knowledge of what's going, what's being tested, what technology is being used, uh, what devices are, are, are being utilized. And, you know, these other companies don't have this uh, technology. You know, they're fighting, they're playing the catch-up game. So I think there's a lot of these uh, private industries, and it's it's no longer just a handful of companies. You know, it's no longer just Northrop Grumman and you know, or two or three other aeronautical companies. There's a lot of companies that are that are creating high tech drone technology that uh, that uh, the government's interested in. It's it's no longer the you know these. Um, you know, small four or five companies. It's it's a lot of people that are getting their hands involved in this. So I wonder if they're utilizing technology to spy on other technology, which would also cross the line for, I guess that's espionage, really. I wouldn't want to get caught. I wouldn't want to be the guy uh, sitting in a little boat flying one of these things and get caught by the government. Uh, that would not be a fun way to uh, lose your job, I'm sure. Um, so, last but not least, talking about UFOs, I made uh, kind of a, a hint to this, and we kind of got away from uh, talking about the MUFON sighting statistics. Uh, I did cover them in 2020, and sometime in 2021, uh, they stopped talking about them and they stopped publishing the numbers. So I, I stopped talking about them here on the show as well. Uh, but uh, I noticed that sometime during the middle of the year, they started popping up uh, pretty frequently. So, of course, you know, MUFON had some 
inside problems with their leadership. And, of course, they also moved from uh, out west to uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. Home of the Bengals. Can we still call them the Bungles? No, we'll, we'll call them the Bengals. Uh, so, you know, they moved the, the, the whole entire organization, retransplanted itself back here to Ohio in the Midwest, where they started from. And I think during that move, you know, they, they kind of unplugged or weren't doing the normal things that they used to be doing. But uh, I'm excited to see the statistics are back. I was hoping that they would do a year-end, a kind of a wrap-up, if you will, of the sightings, which I normally do here on the show. Uh, I keep track of some statistics that they don't really talk about, but uh, I do my number crunching myself. And looking at the uh, sighting statistics for January, and looking back historically, January's uh, aren't the strongest months, but they're not usually the smallest months either. Uh, usually when you get toward uh, the Julys, uh, June, July, August, September, those are usually your biggest months. Uh, February being a shorter month, it's usually a lot smaller as well, shorter month, uh, because uh, I've explained this in the past. So MUFON sighting statistics are based on the time frame in which the reports are reported, not when they actually happened. Uh, so events that were reported in January might have actually happened in 1980, in June, uh, but they were just reported in January. So they go along with those statistics, which I guess if you're going to do it one way, stick with it. Don't change it unless you're going to provide that data, you know, going forward, both sets of data. Uh, I kind of wish they would do it the other way. So they would just show what happened when. So it's easier to research as a researcher. Sometimes it's hard to tell, sift through this information when you've got uh, historical cases mixed in with current cases. Most of this is current cases, but you'll find if you go through the data, you will find historical cases mixed in to their current data. So uh, total UFO sightings, according to MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, in the month of January – of 2022 is 559, which isn't a lot. Uh, you go back to 2020, and there was 628. Uh, there was uh, 598 back in 2019. Um, 690 in 2018. A uh, 580 back in 2017. And I can go back to 2016, 687, and 721 back in 2015. Uh, so kind of a sharp decline here. And if you look at the average uh, for the years, uh, let's see, it was an average of 400. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, 632 a month uh, for total statistics back in 2020. And 594 for 2019. So kind of below average as far as the sightings are concerned uh, on the total. But you know, 
don't know what uh, kind of factors affect that. It seems like they're getting less and less every year. It's kind of another reason why I kind of stopped talking about it. Uh, but the fact that they're not consistent with releasing this data is probably the biggest one. So United States led the pack, of course, because MUFON is located here. 426 sightings for the United States. United Kingdom was second with 45, which is pretty good. Uh, Canada was third with 27. Australia had 11. France had six. Ireland, Mexico, Japan, India, and Spain all had three. Uh, Germany, Sweden, Netherlands, Belgium, Puerto Rico, which doesn't make sense because that's a U.S. territory. Italy, Philippines, Iceland all had two sightings. And you have... uh, Uh, 13, yeah, 13 more that only have one sighting each. Uh, So of these uh, 426 U.S. sightings, California led the pack as they usually do uh, with 42, and they usually lead uh, because of population. So they have the highest population. You would expect numbers-wise that they would also lead the number of sightings based on the um, population. So 42 for California, 32 for Florida, 32 as well for Texas. Uh, Interestingly, Arizona is up there, um, as well as New York. New York, that's no surprise, but Arizona and New York tied with 19. That's not an overwhelmingly high number. Uh, but the fact that Arizona is up there is pretty interesting. Uh, Missouri, 18, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Tennessee, Ohio, all had 14 sightings apiece. Washington and Michigan had 13. Oklahoma had 12. Georgia, South Carolina, both had 11. And Oregon, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Colorado, Kentucky had 10 apiece. We had Nevada and Illinois with nine Connecticut, seven, Utah, Arkansas, Indiana, and Wisconsin with six. And we'll do five, I guess. New Mexico and Minnesota had five apiece. And, of course, it goes down from there. Uh, District of Columbia, Rhode Island, Vermont, Maine, and Montana all had one. Those are all pretty low population areas. So one is uh, pretty decent for those locations. And hopefully, I, I don't know. I don't know why the sightings number continues to dwindle. If it's because uh, they have less uh, people investigating or they have less people reporting or MUFON just isn't what it used to be, which uh, I think that's the case there, that MUFON just isn't the same, that people just aren't reporting that. Uh, obviously, UFOs are more popular than ever right now. Uh, you can't go more than a couple of days without reading a, a UF, UFO story in the news. So it's definitely out there. But uh, my question is, what is MUFON doing to let people know outside of their small circle of followers and people who investigate for them? What are they doing for the general public to know that they're there to take their report? That's that's what I want to know. I'm not saying they should have had a Super Bowl commercial Uh, which would cost millions, but come on. Come on, get out there. 
uh, get in the news, get in the media. I don't know who their uh, public relations people are anymore. I used to know that they used to frequently get into news stories with the people that they had, but uh, you don't hear a lot of names associated with that anymore getting out there. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. And uh, now that we're getting into March, well, I got one more show in February, right? February is such a short month. Yeah, one more show next week, the 22nd. Then we're turning the calendar already to March, March 1st in two weeks. Uh, But let's not get ahead of ourselves. I'll see you next week. But for now, keep your eyes in the skies, your ears in the woods, the hair standing on the back of your neck, and always keep your mind slightly ajar. And above all else, don't stop believing. For the Paranormal News Insider, this is Dr. Brian D. Parsons reporting.